0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss and I hope you're staying happy, healthy and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet the award-winning writer Benjamin Lefebvre. His debut novel, In the Key of Dale, is a disarming coming-of-age novel about a queer teen music prodigy who discovers pieces of himself in places he never thought to look. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know CJ Tudor, best-selling author of The Burning Girls, The Other People, The Hiding Place, and The Chalkman, which won the International Thriller Writers Award for Best First Novel. Over the years, she's worked as a copywriter, a television presenter who asked Tim Robbins a really embarrassing question, a voiceover artist, and a dog walker. Today, we'll talk about some of those jobs and her new novel, The Drift a heart-pounding new book about three ordinary people who risk everything for a chance at redemption. But first, let's meet director Chandler Levac. Her debut feature film, I Like Movies, will be in theaters on March 10th. The film festival hit is based on her experiences working at a blockbuster video store in Burlington, Ontario in the early 2000s. It's the story of how movie-obsessive Lawrence Queller allows his love of film, his dream of attending NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, and his anxiety to alienate the most important people in his life. Part workplace comedy, think high fidelity only in a video store, part character study, I Like Movies is a sweet-natured funny film that digs deep to make us feel empathy for Lawrence, a socially awkward character who hides his real feelings behind a facade of bluster and pretension. Strong performances and a genuinely heartfelt script make this take on adolescent angst a really, really winning debut for Chandler LeVac.
1: Movies are my entire life. I need to watch movies like I need to breathe air. You guys finding everything okay today? Uh, do you work here? No.
2: I just wanted to give you a hard copy of my resume. I'm very good at beginning with the end in mind, which for me is going to uh, NYU Tisch School for the Arts.
1: I just don't understand why you won't apply to Canadian universities. Because I don't want to be like a Canadian filmmaker. What about Adam or David Cronenberg, oh my
0: God. When I caught up with Chandler, she had just returned from a sold out screening of her movie at the Santa Barbara Film Festival in California. So I asked her how it went.
2: It was amazing because there was like 1,500 people in the audience, so... Wow. So the first time I'd ever watched it was like that big a crowd. And just to hear that many people like react to your film or laugh at something you wrote is like, yeah, it was completely shocking and, and overwhelming. It's amazing. Yeah,
0: that amount of people laughing at the same time is really something. I've hosted big events before where I've just happened to say something funny and you hear it and you're like, oh, I get it. Why people get addicted to this. <laughs> Yeah.
2: yeah, I had to make like a, a speech beforehand. And yeah, I made some kind of comment. And it was like my first time ever experiencing that. And I was like, whoa, like it made me feel like, oh, this is what like real filmmakers at like cons <laughs> feel.
0: <laughs> Let's go back a little ways and talk about when you worked in a video store. So that is kind of the basis of all of this. So I guess the question is two part. A, why work in a video store? And B, what did you love about video stores?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, my Joker origin story. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I got a job when I was about 16 at the Blockbuster in Burlington, Ontario on Brand Street. And that was kind of my dream job, because at the time I was obsessed with cinema. And at Blockbuster, you could get 10 free rentals a week. And, you know, like they say in the movie, 15 percent off all cola branded products. Right. Um, And, you know, sometimes I would get to sneak uh, expired bags of Twizzlers if if they were, you know, no one was looking the right right way. Um, But yeah, I think for me, it was just like a place, a safe space to kind of actively nerd out. I mean, even if the customers at the Blockbuster um, didn't exactly share my obsession with like, you know, Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson films and old Stanley Cooper movies, at least I could, you know, I had a safe place to kind of express it to them. And, uh, you know, it was at a weird time, I think in culture because, you know, it was like kind of the heyday of video stores, but they were about to mm-hmm. disappear forever. So it was kind of like the peak of of when they were culturally relevant. And um, yeah, but it was all about kind of like this sort of corny idea of like cinema, but like branded to be corporate. <laughs> you know, there was nothing cool about the blockbuster that I worked at. Um, And it was all about kind of selling things and kind of upsizing people on memberships and stuff. All this stuff I was really, really bad at. And I would get like chastised by my managers for not like being like positive enough about like Spider-Man 3 and DVD and stuff. But any every so often, like a person would come in and like ask me like what they should rent tonight. And, you know, kind of being able to like genuinely connect with people about cinema was like my favorite thing to do.
0: Well, they were corporate. I remember you'd go in and they'd have... 400 copies of whatever the new thing was like Spider-Man <laughs> exactly. 3 or whatever it was, and mm-hmm. have 400 copies of that. But if you wanted to see, you know, Tartofsky's stalker, you had to go back to the back of the store and, you know, with a dust broom and try and find uh, the one copy they had tucked away at the back. So it it was a, a different thing. It wasn't like uh, this Haven for movie lovers. I don't think because you know, they were just, for people who enjoyed movies, but you called them cinema, which I think is really telling. You, <laughs> said, you went there because your love of cinema.
2: Right, yeah. I will, at least I didn't say Kino. I'm not that
0: particular. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Chandler Levac on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, I Like Movies, will be in theaters on March 10th. And so you... You know, had this story and story idea gestating for a long time tell me about the actual writing of the script and and it took years from what i understand
2: yeah well i wrote the first draft in a month like i feel like it just kind of poured out of me in a weird way and it was kind of like by necessity because i really they have in in canada telfilm really has this incredible grant for first-time mm-hmm. filmmakers called talent watch and some of the greatest films that have been made in like past years have been through talent to watch grants like Scarborough and werewolf and uh, firecrackers. Mm -hmm. And it feels like it's so interesting that every year, like these amazing films by, you know, female filmmakers and emerging filmmakers and BIPOC creators are all getting made for like $125,000. And those are the movies that are like premiering at Berlin and winning awards at festivals and like launching the careers of these amazing filmmakers. And like, like Scarborough indicated last year, just absolutely descent, like destroying the Canadian Screen Awards and cleaning up in like every category. Um, and so I was like, I really want to make a movie, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's not happening for me. And I just have to think of an idea that I could execute for $125,000. So that's kind of what led me to sort of think about my last year of high school working at Blockbuster, because I felt like I'd never seen kind of like a coming-of-age corporate video store movie before, which is very specific.
0: (laughs) Well, it's really specific, but I also think that the story is universal, and that's why it's connecting with people so well at film festivals. You just got back from Santa Barbara. We saw one another a few weeks ago in Victoria at a film festival. At TIFF, it did really well. And I think the reason is uh, because uh, the specificity of it video store someone who wants to go to NYU, the main character, and study film and they're just so passionate about it all. Speaks to anyone who's wanted to uh you know, whether you wanted to be a musician, a baseball player, whatever, if you had the passion for it, you see yourself in this story somewhere.
2: Yeah. I think we all cringe at our high school selves, you know, where we're like trying to figure out identity and we like glom onto something and we're like, that's me. I like movies. That's like the core of who I am now. <laughs> And, you know, like, I was totally, like, going to value villages in Burlington and, like, finding weird ties and, like, wearing them with, like, oversized shirts and kind of in a baseball hat, like, kind of in this weird Steven Spielberg drag. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did not have any boyfriends in <laughs> high school. And, you know, like, but I think there's something that you find that just, like, hits and you're, like, oh, this is a glimpse of, like, what I'm going to be like when I'm older or, like, I'm I'm becoming my future self, like, in the present now. But, It's also so embarrassing because you're so pretentious and you have no self-awareness and you're just like this chaotic, chaotic mess of like raw nerves and, you know, um, strange pheromones and like, you have no idea what to do with yourself.
0: (laughs) Well, and when you're 17, 18 years old, like everything is so important. Everything that happens is very, very big. Uh, You know, you don't have perspective really.
2: Yeah, I mean, the first panic attack I ever had was in the back room of Blockbuster, and that's kind of what I modeled the scene about, and it was just about, like, you know, I think it was maybe March, and I hadn't heard back from any universities yet, and my brain just immediately went to this, like, castrosophizing of, like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into any universities, I'm going to have to work at this Blockbuster forever, like, (laughs) my life is over, and, you know, I think you, 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 if you're prone to anxiety, or if you're sensitive, or, you know, like you can really, yeah, everything just feels so high stakes.
0: And tell me about how much of Lawrence, who is the the main character uh, in the film, uh, is based on you. I mean, I'm assuming <laughs> a great deal of it, but tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, probably more than I would care to admit. I, <laughs> I'm really happy that I reversed the genders so that people are like, oh, he's so inseparable and annoying. I'm like, yeah, I know. Well, he's just a very different person than me. <laughs> But I, you know, I think it was really hard for my mom to watch the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think, I think he, you know, he's obviously kind of a exaggerated version of maybe what I was like in high school and, mm-hmm. and different. And there's a lot of parts of his like autobiographical backstory that have nothing to do with my life at all and embellishments and and stuff. But I think maybe the the core kind of. Gears of like gear shift, like what makes him tick as a person I, I, are, are definitely things that I really struggled with in high school and um, and grew out of. And I, And I feel like I can maybe now the reason that I feel like it can be an empathetic, loving portrait of him is because I feel like. It was sort of a, an exercise of trying to find empathy and love for my high school self.
0: That was Chandler Levac on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, I Like Movies, will be in theaters everywhere on March 10th. And check it out. It's really good. My review will be at all the usual places, richardkrauss.ca, ctvnews.ca uh, on the week of review. Uh, but I'll tell you now, I'll give you a hint, a little preview. I loved it. It's a really great movie, particularly if you love movies already. My guest in this segment is CJ Tudor. She is the author of The Burning Girls, The Other People, The Hiding Place, and The Chalk Man, which won the International Thriller Writers Award for Best First Novel, the Barry Award, and the Strand Critics Award for Best Debut Novel. In her new book, three ordinary people risk everything for a chance at redemption while lurking in their shadows is an even greater threat one that threatens to consume all of humanity. Dun, dun, dun. It's called The Drift, and it is available now wherever you buy fine books. CJ Tudor joined me via Zoom from her home in England. Congratulations on The Drift.
3: Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm um yeah, I'm pretty chuffed with how it's doing. It was kind of a passion project this one. So it's 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 really nice that it's been warmly warmly received, well, <laughs> so to speak.
0: Okay, we'll talk about why it was a passion project in just a little bit. Yes. But you have said that you've always loved to write. Uh, but you didn't really knuckle down and do it until you were in your mid 30s. Were you yes. writing all the way along and not sharing it? What was going on all those years that you weren't being published?
3: Oh, my goodness. Lots of, well, I think mean, it might, yeah, it did take me a long time to knuckle down. I think I was, I just couldn't finish stuff in my 20s. I think I was too busy being irresponsible and doing 20 <laughs> sort of things, you know? Um, but I, I still I sort of did it in between. And then I sort of got to my 30s and thought, well, you know, if I'm going to ever do this seriously, you know, write a book, I need to kind of knuckle down and finish something. Um, and I eventually did. And it was abs- it was dreadful. It was awful. But I got to the end of it, which was like really important <laughs> for me. Um, and then I did, I think, was about the second book I wrote. I did. I did get an agent. Um, but I sort of learned the hard way that it's better to sort of have no agent than the wrong agent, because mm-hmm. this particular agent really wanted me to sort of concentrate on writing what I would call more crime procedure or straight crime, where I kind of kept going a bit Stephen King on them. Right. And eventually, I think after two years and not a sniff of a publisher, we, um, we decided to part ways, which was probably the most difficult decision I ever made, because I kind of threw myself back into the slush pile. And it was a long time then before I got another agent. But I think I just took that time to just enjoy writing. I figured out that I would, I'd lost the love of writing, trying to write to please
0: mm-hmm.
3: an agent or a market. And I kind of got that back again. And although it took a long time, I mean, I was 46 when The Chalk Man was published, my first book, um, I kind of think i hopefully used that time wisely in in getting better, maybe, you know, figuring out what I wanted to really write.
0: <laughs> you say that everything that you know about writing, you learn from reading. Uh, yes. So, I mean, Stephen King seems like an obvious... Uh, influence, yes. but what were some of the others?
3: I mean, when I was when I was sort of in my teens, horror was big. It was the eighties, mm-hmm. so again, I read Stephen King and James Herbert and Dean Koontz and Clive Barker. Um, but I also grew up reading Agatha Christie. You know, I was you know so mysteries were a big thing, um, kind of in my very early reading years. I was quite a precocious reader, so I think what I write now kind of combines my love of the classic mystery in a way and my love of horror. I like I like to have a good whodunit in there, but I like that kind of creepier, darker aspect too. And you know, I love writers like Linwood Barclay and Harlan Coburn who are who are great at those twisty kind of mysteries mm. with, with surprises and reveals. You know, I love reading a a thriller that makes me go, Oh, I can't believe <laughs> I didn't get
0: that. You
3: know, that that moment is just great.
0: Well, those moments are great, but they have to be earned in the book. So if you throw in a big twist that is that gives you that aha oh. moment that oh gosh what just happened moment, yeah. but there was no way for the reader oh, to yeah. see it coming, that's a cheat. That uh, that's not good writing.
3: No, I hate that. You've got to give breadcrumbs. I always say it has to. It should be that as you're reading the book, the reader should feasibly be able to get there themselves mm-hmm. at some point or at least go back and go oh god I missed that but yeah. of course like, I see it now you've got to give those breadcrumbs otherwise yeah otherwise you're right you haven't earned it and even I think with horror or anything that has a vaguely supernatural kind of element to it you still I think have to ground your mysteries so that there's mm-hmm. not there's not a cop out. You know, it's, it's right. got to be feasible. The reader has to be able to get there as well, or maybe get there even just before you do the reveal because mm-hmm. there's satisfaction in that as well. But yeah, I definitely agree. You've got you've got to earn that reveal. You've got to earn that twist. Otherwise it's, yeah, you're right. You're cheating people. It's, it's not fair. You don't want someone to come away from a book going, well, I couldn't possibly have ever got that, could I? You know?
0: <laughs> you're listening to CJ Tudor on The Richard Krauss Show. Her new novel, The Drift, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Do you think that it was from your early... Early love of Agatha Christie that you learned about kind of the structure that is so important uh, in putting the kind of whodunit aspect of the books together?
3: It's interesting. Um, possibly, possibly really early on, I guess, um, because you know, I'm kind of what I call a self taught writer. I didn't, I never went to, I, I left school at 16, so I never went to college or university or did any courses. I kind of, yeah, learned everything from reading. And I guess you kind of get it by osmosis in a way. It kind of all feeds into when you start doing your own writing. So definitely elements of that, definitely elements of the classic kind of lock through mystery, the classic who done whodunit. Um, and then there's other elements of, say, reading horror and thrillers and taking those on board as well. The way to kind of foreshadow or, or build up to a scare or a chill. So I think all those elements go in there. And definitely, I think I just absorbed it all and it all kind of came out in my own writing. But I think you still have to kind of teach yourself how to manage pacing and mm-hmm. structure. And that only kind of comes from sitting and doing it, really.
0: You had kind of a, a dazzling array of jobs. Uh, from the time that you left school uh, to the time in which The Chalk Man, the first big hit came out. Uh, You were uh, a a waiter in a restaurant. You were a trainee reporter, a copywriter, a radio script writer. You did voiceovers. Uh, You had a dog walking company, which I think you were were running when uh, The Chalk Man came out. So uh, lots of different things. I only see that as being good for the writing, because it gives you experience. You're dealing with people as a waiter. I did that for a long time. Waiter and and bartender for a long time. Boy, do you ever learn a lot about people (laughs) uh, from that point of view? And I I guess that all feeds into the writing.
3: Yeah, I do. I I think everything is good experience you know, and I'm I, I was, I was never very good at settling on a job. I think in, in my heart, I kind of always wanted to work for myself or sort of do my own thing. And I think that's why I had kind of so many jobs. I was really stro- well, not struggling. I enjoyed all the different jobs I had, but, but I was never able to kind of really find my thing. But like you say, I think all those things are great experience. Like, you know, I also did shop work as well. You know, I did a little bit of TV presenting mm-hmm. all these, all these things feed in. And like you say, I think, you know, things like you know waitressing or or bartending or shop work all those things are great for for people you know watching and learning and dealing with people um so I think nothing is ever wasted um and I'm and I'm really glad I kind of had a lot of jobs before I sort of became became a writer she says but I I was quite late you know I was 46 when the short man was published and again I'm quite glad of that because I, I was just able to feed more so many more experiences into my writing by that point and I really appreciated it a lot more I don't know I really admire people who you know were able to knuckle down and write and get published sort of in their 20s but also I think in in a weird way maybe you you lose a little bit as well because suddenly you're a writer and you're not you're doing all those other things that you can then put right. into your writing if that makes sense so yeah I, it kind of I think it, it all feeds in.
0: Okay, one last influence question, uh, and that is the influence of Scooby Doo. I've read that you—I you, don't know—perhaps you're unaware of it, but you mention Scooby Doo quite often uh, when you're speaking uh, in in uh, interviews. Tell me a little bit about how, how uh, Scooby Doo was something that that formed you.
3: Do you know I, someone? Some, someone once asked me. I think you know when, when when did you start getting interested in these dark, creepy, sort of supernatural mysteries? And and I, was, I just sort of scratched my head and thought. You know, I think maybe it was Scooby-Doo. You know, I memory of watching mysteries, you know, involving kind of supernatural stuff and creepy and creepy goings on was probably Scooby-Doo. So I think Scooby-Doo has a lot to answer for. Um, and yeah, I sometimes refer to like the, the Scooby-Doo ending. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't want the Scooby-Doo ending. But yeah, I think it's probably a big influence. And it's funny because my little girl, um, it, it's kind of timeless. My little girl, like loved Scooby-Doo and watched a lot of Scooby-Doo. So I think for a lot of kids, it perhaps was your first introduction to, to mysteries. And, and also, you know, kids, I think kids do like dark, creepy stuff as well. There was just something about being a child. You're kind of drawn to it. I don't know what it is. Um, so yeah, I, I think Scooby-Doo maybe was the, was the source of it all, the start of it all.
0: Now, The Drift is the new book. Uh, you said earlier that there's a kind of personal feel that you have uh, to this one. I said we'd get back to it, so here we are. What What's the personal connection then to The Drift?
3: Well, I had, I mean, um, the fact is I had the idea for The Drift in 2019. So um, this was obviously you know, pre-COVID and, and pandemic and everything that happened. Um, But I I couldn't write. I I loved the idea. I really loved the idea, but I couldn't write it right away because I was kind of contracted. I pitched a different book to my publishers that I'd already started writing. Um, And then, of course, 2020 happened Mm -hmm. and the pandemic and and everything associated with it. And I think like a lot of people, you know, I I had quite a hard time throughout that trying to write this book and and juggle everything else like homeschooling. And and I think that underlying anxiety that perhaps, you know, you didn't even realise you had at the time. And then in early 2020, when I lost my dad um, and I was throughout all of this, I was still trying to sort of finish this book. And it just kind of was it wasn't working Mm -hmm. um, for for all all sorts of reasons. Um, And I think it it became I I came to associate it with the most awful time of my life in a way. And when I eventually handed it into my publishers, you know, they came back with a lot of notes. (laughs) and I was kind of like, this isn't just me. This right. book is, is just not there. And I, I think I started crying and basically said, I, I can't go back to it. I can't edit it. I can't fix this book. And I would really like to put it away and forget about it. And well, it was
0: just a memory. It was a physical manifestation, probably, really of a terrible was, time.
3: It really was. And I remember trying to write it and, and particularly around the time I lost my dad and waking up with this hard knot of anxiety in my chest about, it. you know, normally I love, you know, sitting at my, my, my laptop and writing, but I. It had become, yeah, it had become to represent everything horrible. And I, I just knew I, I couldn't go back to it. And my publishers were great, um, fortunately. And they sort of, well, what do you want to write? You know, we, we can, of course, we can skip a publication year. You know, we, we, we get it. But, you know, do you have sort of something else? And I was like, I love this idea that I had back in 2019 still. I still really love it. And I want to write that. And that was the drift. Um, and they were like, OK, you know, kind of go for it. Go right. for it. It, it. You know, it was a different idea to my previous books. But they were really supportive, and I think they understood that that I needed I needed to write this book now to kind of get my my mojo back, as it were. And <laughs> and in between, we put out a short story collection, which kind of like broke things up a bit, and again gave me something different to do. I think, um and yeah, and that it was kind of born out of that. And I I put yeah a lot of I think well a lot of <laughs> stuff I'd gone through and lots of us had gone through into the drift, to be fair. So yeah, it and I and I wrote it very quickly and. And, Yeah, I, I loved writing it, and it was the right—it was the right decision.
0: Well, it's three interconnected stories, yeah. essentially. And uh, they, they take place during one incident, a big snowstorm, mm-hmm. uh, the, the three uh, stories. So tell me a little bit about uh, that, where that idea came from. It's a different structure, I think, probably than yeah. uh, you've used before. So uh, you have to think about it differently. And perhaps after the palate cleanser of putting that other book away, uh, yeah. you were ready to do something a little different.
3: I think I really was. And I think every author perhaps gets to a stage where they want to do something different. They kind of, you know, go, I've, I've done this and I don't want to do this again. I've, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want to sort of break out a little bit. And, and the idea started with me thinking about um, the smallest kind of locked room mystery you could write. And I, and I had the idea of a cable car stranded, hanging thousands <laughs> of feet above these snowy mountains. Yeah. And there's a group of strangers in there and a dead body. And, done, and that seemed like a really good, fun idea, but it, it didn't seem like it was enough for a whole novel. So then I started thinking about, well, what about three? Three essentially locked room mysteries, three separate stories that somehow connect. So that's what we have in *The Drift*. Essentially, we have Meg, who comes to and awakes uh, the people. You're listening to C.J. Car. Tudor on the, the Richard Krause Show. Her, her new novel, the, *The Drift*, is available now wherever feet, you buy fine books. With no idea of how they've got there. And then we have hannah who is in a a coach that is is, she's being evacuated from an exclusive boarding school in the snowstorm um which crashes it overturns um and she's trapped there with the survivors and the dead in this overturned coach slowly getting buried in the snow in this drift. um and they can't escape but to complicate matters it seems like someone doesn't want them to escape the emergency exit's been disabled and the driver seems to have disappeared so there's this strange things going on here and then the third location is carter who is in an isolated ski chalet with people we believe he lives and works with um and they're sort of again trapped by this snowstorm and the power is failing their generator is failing Um, and if the generator fails we soon come to realize that there's a danger outside that they're at, at risk from but also something contained within the basement of the chalet where they are living and working as well. So each story has something that makes you go, there's something a bit more going on here mm. what, that's not quite right. And they're all connected by a sort of a greater story, a greater threat outside the individual risks in each sort of situation that we gradually find out what's going on as the story progresses. Um, I think it's, it's perhaps not to give too much away to actually say that we, we're dealing with a world where it's slightly near future society has crumbled after a viral pandemic, which is why these people find themselves stranded in these extreme circumstances with no rescue coming and trying to get to somewhere safe or away from a place of danger. Mm-hmm. And that gradually unfolds as the, as the book progresses. So what? it was it was—it it, it was a lot of stuff in there that I took from things that had happened, but the idea itself ha- came before <laughs> Way back in 2019. So I felt quite prophetic about some of it.
0: That's right. Yeah, the the crystal ball helped out, I guess, on that one, putting the plot together. Now uh, We're almost out of time, but I do want to ask uh, what you did when you were a TV presenter that upset Tim Robbins.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. This is possibly one of the most mortifying moments of my entire life. Um, Yes, I'll I'll try and... But for a very short time in the in the early 90s, when I was about 22, um, I worked for a, a television programme called Movie Watch. Um, and it was a show about movies. So they would send you out on the junkets to go and right. interview movie stars, which was amazing. Um, but they liked to send you with a list of questions that were a bit challenging or controversial right. um, rather than just the normal questions. And I had to interview Tim Robbins. Um, and it was for the film Dead Man Walking which, if you've seen it, is quite a serious thing. Yes. yeah, yeah. And uh, I was sent with this list of really irreverent, quite rude um, and borderline offensive questions, one of which was about Susan Sarandon's breasts. So I was also told quite firmly I had to ask these questions, you know, or, or kind of that was it. I'd be cut yeah. from the, the show. You know, you go and ask them, you can't change them. So, yeah, so I, I had to kind of watch this very serious, deeply moving, deeply meaningful film, and they'd come in with questions about Susan Sarandon's breasts and, and yeah, it was, uh, I mean, he actually was relatively um, kind about it all, but at the end of it all, the, the publicists wouldn't give me the tapes of the interviews. Yep. <laughs> so... that
0: that's what they do i I have done hundreds yeah. of those junkets and yeah yeah when when they go sideways or something sideways. like that happens uh <laughs> the tapes just automate they just disappear they, you yeah. don't you don't get given them yeah
3: no yeah. so yeah and it was awful because I was a huge Tim Robbins fan and I was so excited about interviewing him and now it's forever you know bound up in that oh one of the most <laughs> mortifying moments ever.
0: There's a picture of you up in his kitchen somewhere with an X through it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, CJ, thank you very much for this. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was CJ Tudor on The Richard Krause Show. Her apocalyptic new novel, The Drift, is already a bestseller and it's available now wherever you buy fine books. And if you don't believe me that CJ is a great writer, well, you haven't read her books for one thing, but once you do, you'll agree with no less an expert than Stephen King, the horror legend himself, who loved... The Chalk Man and has loved a number of her books, he gave her a ringing endorsement. And she said, well, that's amazing because The Chalk Man is essentially an homage to Stephen King and all the books that she loved when she was an awkward teen in the 1980s. It made her so happy that she said, when he said, CJ rocks, she said, well, that's going on the headstone right there. In this segment, we'll talk about In the Key of Dale. That's the debut novel from Benjamin Lefebvre. He's a writer based in Kitchener, Ontario. His edited books include the anthology The L.M. Montgomery Reader, which won the 2016 Prose Award for Literature from the Association of American Publishers, and an edition of L.M. Montgomery's rediscovered final book, The Blythes Are Quoted. His novel, In the Key of Dale, is a young Adult book that can also be enjoyed by adults. It's the story of a 16-year-old loner and musical prodigy whose life changes when an unexpected friendship with a classmate begins to take a turn for the romantic. Here's Benjamin Lefevre. Tell me a little bit uh, about uh, where the idea for the book came from.
1: Well, in one way, the idea came from me wanting to tell a coming out story that wasn't really a coming out story, uh, and this. Has- that so I was getting tired of, uh, well, in my own lifetime as a reader, I kind of went from um, zero representation of, of, of queer teen uh, characters in fiction to, thankfully now, um, a kind of wide range of, mm. of queer stories within, within teen fiction but that means in a way that the same story kind of gets told over and over and over again and i kind of wanted to find um, a different way of of imagining what coming out looks like but also just a, a reimagining a different way of telling a story that happens to be about a queer teenager without the focus really being coming out so that's one one angle mm-hmm. and the second one is by the time i started writing this book my father had died four years before that and i was kind of interested in thinking about the long-term effects of grief right so you know what happens once you've kind of gone through the event itself and the immediate aftermath and what you're left with is kind of like figuring out what the rest of your life looks Mm -hmm. like with with the loss so i was kind of i was more interested in thinking about how what that might look like for someone else who had lost his father under different circumstances that I was really in thinking about it in terms of me and my own circumstances.
0: Are there challenges in terms of writing about a a 16 year old, uh, teen character? Um, I see you on zoom and you're not 16, neither am I. And I'm not sure if I even really remember what it was all about being 16. So tell me a little bit about that. I like to think that I remember well, what it's like to be 16 in part
1: because, um, in some ways, I don't think I've I've evolved entirely out of my own, you know, adolescent awkwardness. What really has changed though between my experience as 16 and what, what 16 being 16 means now is the way that technology comes into play in terms of not only what information real teenagers have access to, but how they communicate with each other. Um, and so and I'm I'm also as someone in my 40s kind of late to the texting game i mean i've been you know email is something that that i've been i've been on since i was not much older than dale um but you know the the more recent forms of technology i've kind of avoided so i really had to think carefully about how would Dale communicate with other people and and, and other people his age and what that, what might that look like? And, you know, that's one instance where you just can't draw on your own experience
0: because everything has changed. And what did you choose then? We talk about communication. We talk about that. Why did you choose to write uh, this as a, a, a novel told in letters? So in fiction, one of the conceits of fiction is that
1: somebody is narrating, somebody is telling the story. So either somebody is telling this in their own voice or there's a separate narrator telling the story about different characters. And when you have a first person narrator, either you use the past tense or the present tense. And usually you can kind of tell, depending on the style, uh, is, this, is this a teen narrator looking back on something that happened recently or is this an old, a much older person looking back you know, quite a, from, from the vantage point of quite a, quite a bit away, uh, quite, a, quite a number of years away um, uh, toward adolescence. So I was interested in thinking about a way to tell the story about a character who knows what just happened, but doesn't know the outcome, right? Because mm-hmm. whenever you have a narrator telling their own story they know what already happened they know how it ends when they begin they pretend that they don't and that's that's the fun of fiction is that like you know it's a suspension of disbelief like oh no what would happen well you you know perfectly well what happened because you presumably you lived it so i i i I was interested in that in terms of um uh, of a character who doesn't know what is going to happen next and can't really place what just happened Mm -hmm. in any kind of context the way that a narrator looking back
0: will be able to. So that's one reason. You're listening to Benjamin Lefebvre on The Richard Krauss Show. His novel, In the Key of Dale, is available now wherever fine books are sold.
1: And the second reason was I I, I was kind of interested in seeing what it would look like for Dale to develop a different kind of relationship with his, his late father, unexpectedly, since his father has been gone for seven years, and uh, to yeah to think about what that would look like and what what how that might tie into dale's coming of age and his evolution
0: as a character the novel explores music um tell me is music something that is dominant in your life that is a passion of yours as well and you brought that forward uh tell me a little bit about the inclusion of that
1: well like dale i went to a music intensive school um as a child for a number of years and so that that gave me a uh, quite a foundation um, in music in fact some of the um when i was about 10 or 11 my my school recorded um, a cd of gabriel fauré's requiem which becomes a central motif in the book and of course cd's back then were were such new technology like we bought a copy but we didn't have a cd player yet cuz we we still had our turntable so <laughs> the CD just kind of sat there for a while until we got around to updating our our technology. Um, so yeah, there's a lot with music that that um, um, you know I learned to play the piano as well, but I I I, I do I, I I do feel the need to emphasize that. Dale's ability and his passion for music far, far excel mine. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really realize this until I rewrote, rewrote the first chapter in which he goes to the the um the Royal Conservatory to do his performance exam because I I that that was a late, a much later edition. And I thought, well, what would he play? And everything's online these days. So I I looked up, I looked up the repertoire and looked up scores online and I thought wow, he's good. I, I really didn't think he was this good, but yeah, like this is really high caliber stuff and it's far, far, far beyond my own, my own ability. Um, so that was fun. And what's fun with music for me and as with, you know, TV shows and any kind of pop culture thing is not only referring to specific things that kind of fit, but also making up, um, like there, you know, a lot, a lot of the bands and TV shows and 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 stuff like that that's in the book are, are things that I made up, and I just think that's just a lot of a lot of fun to, you know, to imagine what would it be like for a band to be called Porn Widows. What would what would they sound like?
0: That was author Benjamin Lefevre. His book in the Key of Dale is available now wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Benjamin, also a big thanks to CJ Tudor for joining me from England. Her chilling new novel, The Drift, is available now, again, wherever you buy fine books. And keep an eye open for Chandler Levesque's great new movie, it's called I Like Movies and, well, I really love I Like Movies. Uh, It's in theaters on March 10th, it's really worth a look. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.